0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with a simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading this morning is coming from the book of Daniel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And this is from the message. Darius reorganized his kingdom. He appointed 120 governors to administer all the parts of his realm. Over them were three vice-regents, one of whom was Daniel. The governors reported to the vice-regents, who made sure that everything was in order for the king. But Daniel, brimming with spirit and intelligence, so completely outclassed the other vice-regents and governors that the king decided to put him in charge of the whole kingdom. The vice-regents and governors got together to find some old scandal or skeleton in Daniel's life that they could use against him but they couldn't dig up anything. He was totally exemplary and trustworthy. They could find no evidence of negligence or misconduct. So they finally gave up and said, we're never gonna find anything against this Daniel unless we can cook up something religious. The vice regents and governors conspired together and when, went, when they went to the king and said, King Darius, live forever. We've convened your vice regents, governors, and all your leading officials and have agreed that the king should issue the following decree. For the next 30 days, no one is to pray to any god or mortal except you, O king. Anyone who disobeys will be thrown into the lion's den. Issue this decree, O king, and make it unconditional, as if written in stone like all the laws of the Medes and the Persians. King Darius signed the decree. When Daniel learned that the decree had been signed and posted, He continued to pray just as he had always done. His house had windows in the upstairs that opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he knelt there in prayer, thanking and praising his God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. We're in a series called Habits. We've started a couple weeks ago where we're considering uh, different, the power of habit in our lives. And uh, we, as a church, have... Thought about what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? We've had many discussions about it, and where we have ended up landing is that following Jesus together means identifying certain habits and releasing the power of habits in our life together. And um, so, if this, if you consider this your church home, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to the previous two uh, sermons. Almost said episodes like it was some TV show, Uh, uh, two previous sermons, because it really shares a framework of why this is important and what we're about doing. But we're shifting into a different gear this morning as we now are going to consider each of these spiritual habits uh, one by one, as we consider how to have them integrated into our life and how we can practice these habits together as a community. The the reality is that our lives are patterned by habits. These habits set up like a grid for which the rest of our lives can grow. And though many of them are done unconsciously, they release incredible power not only for our souls but also for our communities. And so that's the case for all our habits. But there are some habits that people consider keystone habits. They're kind of like a super habit. Because this one habit has like the splintering effect when it is enacted that it it releases other habits uh, into place, like the first domino in a long set of dominoes. For example, I have a deeply entrenched keystone habit in my life. I'm a night owl. Where, Where are my night owls in this place? So I, uh, my, I don't even have to look over there. My wife is rolling her eyes right now because I talk often about how I want to be a morning person, and yet I, that never really takes root in my life. I'm a night owl through and through. Uh, it's like there's two different versions of me that are in constant battle. There's morning mark, and then there's late night mark, and they hate each other. Like, they really despise one another. There's Morning, Mark. Uh, he has his pitch. He has his PowerPoint. He's been trying to convince me with it for years and years. Will come to me and say, "Mark, wake up with me. You can before it, the house has any noise. You can get up. You can go on a walk if you want to exercise. You can have an unhurried time of prayer. Pour yourself that single origin pour-over coffee." watch the sunrise with me. And when your children come downstairs, you'll have like a full tank ready to welcome for the day. Now, late night, Mark is in the back smugly smacking gum, like super cocky because he knows it's never going to happen, right? Like he's in the back. He's, he knows because at 10 PM, he knows that Mark is going to get his second wind and while my wife is like, it's, I think I'm going to shut down, I said, well, maybe I'll just watch one episode, just one episode, kind of wind down for the day. But then about halfway through that episode, uh, nachos starts ma- sounding really great, right? So we'll go ahead and do that. And then I'm halfway through my late night snack when the episode is over with. So Of course, we have to roll into the next one and let, you know, let the body digest before you go to bed because I'm like a real health nut. Um, And cut to, you know, a couple hours later, I'm sitting on the couch nodding off to a show I never really wanted to watch fully with salsa on my shirt and late night Mark is just giving morning Mark a noogie, you know, like it's just he's won again. That's the power of a keystone habit because that one decision, that one habit splinters off to a a bunch of different things. It splinters off into how I feel in the morning, my nutrition, my rest, my relationships. It's like, uh, it's that one sense of, um, one habit that has this power to release. And by the way, I'm not looking for accountability. Don't come up to me and ask, like, how's Morning Mark doing? I'm not opening up a conversation here, all right? This is a confession, all right? Have you talked to Morning Mark lately? No, that's not, I don't want that, Okay. But keystone habits are the first domino that splinter off into so many other. And um, just as that can be the case for an unhealthy habit, it also can be true for healthy habits as it releases potential for life and goodness and beauty into our souls and into this world. And as I look at the the list of the eight different habits that we have, the different practices, um, if you all haven't seen this, I know it feels like a lot the inner circle is daily for daily practice the outward circle is for weekly practices when i look at these the prayerful reflection three times a day for me seems to be the keystone habit because it releases power into all, everything else we're doing so today i want to just talk about what is that the power in that prayerful reflection three times a day now this uh, this is nothing super creative. All we're talking about is pausing our day in, in the morning, midday, and evening. Though we might be tempted to begin our day with productivity or mindless scrolling on our feed, we can begin our day with contemplation, with spending an unhurried time with God, reconnecting with God, and setting our hearts on a different metric to measure what really matters in, your, in, in our life. We also, midday, we can pause in midday to recalibrate the day's activity and put our vocation in our environments in the presence of Christ once again. We end our day with prayerful reflection as we release everything that happened in that day into the light of Christ's mercy and love. This practice isn't something creative that we have constructed as a church. It's actually something quite ancient. It was a practice for the Jewish community of people before the time of Christ. We see this, as we we have just heard, in the life of Daniel. The book of Daniel is a story about what happens when you are taken from your home and you find yourself in exile, where you didn't choose to, you didn't sign up for it, but you got pulled and plucked from your old life and dropped into another one. For me, honestly, this last year has felt like exile. No one signed up for this to be, you know— plucked up from our old way of being and dropped into COVID world. But this is where we are. And I find those writings in in the the books of exile that we find the people's experiences really formative. And today I've been thinking about what Daniel has to teach us about this. So Daniel was taken uh, by the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He had a strategy where he took much of the young men from the elite families uh, within Israel and chose from them the best of the best to take and to be a part of his court and His goal was simple: it was to take the best of the Jewish community, their young men, and transform them into Babylonian uh, elite to make make their his counsel his advisors and So what he did was is he took their whole culture and background and sought to leave it behind. They would then eat as Babylonians eat. They would study and read what Babylonians study and read. The king even renamed them. He gave them new names. So all of this was just to make sure that they would leave their old identity behind and be found here in this new setting with a new created transformed identity. Now, just think of how easy it would have been to forget yourself in that setting plucked from a battle, dropped into a palace, given new clothes, given a new name, new context. How easy it would have been just to leave your old identity behind and just accommodate to what was before you, the culture that was before you, the life, even the name that was given to you. Yet we find here that Daniel, he remained faithful. He remembered who he was. He didn't lose track of himself, or God, in the midst of everything that was trying to pull him out of that. um, He did not conform to the patterns of his world. Instead, he remained connected to God and to his deeper identity. And the amazing thing is, though other people, they did accommodate, what we find in Daniel is that he actually flourished. Like, in comparison to everyone else, he actually, like head and shoulders above everyone else, flourished. Physically, he grew stronger. Intellectually, he was smarter. Uh, And everyone knew it, even the king. So what we find in in chapter six, much later down the road, the king decided to do like a reorganization of how uh, the kingdom would be governed. So he did like everyone else would do. He had a company-wide retreat at Dave & Buster's. He pulled out the org chart, the new org chart, and everyone looked at it and go, where am I on this org chart? There's 120 of these governors. Uh, another way that they, that they called them was the satraps. 120 of them that would kind of act as the governors. And then there's three people that would act above them as vice regents as, or administrators as the different translations. And Daniel was one of those three. And after a while, the king started to watch them and realize that Daniel needs to be in charge of everything. So, you know, if the book of Daniel was a TV show called Succession, Daniel is the one that is in charge of everything, and they all despised him for it. So what do they do? Smear campaign. Let's get the Daniel. Where are the skeletons in his closet? Because you know how men are if you give them enough power, if you give them enough money and comforts, They are surely going to abuse it, right? But not so with Daniel. Again, he seems rooted. He seems to know who he is in light of knowing who God is. And we find this in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. The only weakness that Daniel had, the only thing that they could exploit was Daniel's devotion to God. That was it. That was the kind of character that he lived he was a man of, of full of integrity. And the only way to get to Daniel was to focus on his communion and connection to God. And that's exactly what they do. Because they knew that Daniel had a habit. He had a habit. Daniel had a habit that kept him grounded, he had a discipline that allowed him to remember who he was and who he belonged to. And what was it? Well, Daniel was a person of prayer. This keystone habit marked his life, and people knew it. Not that he was showy, but they just knew that this is what kept him rooted. He would disappear three times a day. He would go and be alone in his room. He would open up the windows towards his home, towards Israel, and he would pray to God. That was his habit. That was his pattern that kept his life structured. And the governors knew this, that that they knew that if they created a decree that would allow no one to pray to anyone but the king, that that's how they would get him. And I love after this decree was publicized, after it was made known, I love the next verse, verse 10. When Daniel learned that the decree had been signed and posted, he continued to pray just as he had always done. His house had windows in the upstairs that opened up to Jerusalem Three times a day, he knelt there and pray, in prayer, thanking and praising God. So without delay, Daniel returned to God in prayer, just as the decree was made known. Was it in protest that he did that? Maybe. Was it the fact that he just wanted to get it over with? <laughs> that could be it, maybe. But I think it was because of that habit was so a part of his psyche and who he was, when fear and insecurity popped up in his life he had habituated the response of prayer and that habit prepared daniel for the trial and the tests that would come his way and so it can be with you and i we too need anchors for our day we need habits that keep us rooted a rhythm of breaking away from the busyness of this world so that we have a structure to cling to, to grow upon. This is what kept Daniel literally alive. It's what kept him alive. It's what allowed him to flourish. It was the habit of prayer. It sounds so simple, right? Like prayer is so common. It's so talked about. It almost means nothing to us. But this was life and death for Daniel. Daniel. What about us? I find prayer to be a curious thing. Uh, We live in a time and a day and age in America where people are calling the era that we're living in, the culture we're living in, post-Christian. That we've moved beyond uh, the, the fact that the Christian narrative now is no longer the dominant narrative by which we as a society were working from. And that can induce a lot of fear or excitement in some people, but it just seems to be more and more the reality. Yet, the interesting thing for me is, even though we have been moving into this, uh, this, this, this new day and age, prayer is something that we can't seem to shake. I find, I find that really interesting, that even though we live in this major departure, prayer is, has a presence in the modern life. Now, here's a study. This is from a couple years back, but I just find, I find this interesting, that slightly more than half of all Americans, so regardless of religious identification, Half of all Americans say they pray every day. 79% of Americans said that they prayed at least once over the last three months. Almost 80% of Americans have prayed over the last three months. I find this one even more interesting. One in five people who identify with no, no religions, they're considered nuns, they say that they pray every single day. This is good, right? Like these this right here is good, right? Well, I think it's just interesting. I don't know if it's good or bad, but what it, for me, what it points to is we can't seem to shake our longing for prayer. We can't seem to shake this belief or this hope that there's something or someone out there who hears us, who knows us, and can do something about it. Even though most people in our culture, they don't know what to think about God, They just cling to prayer as as if God is real and there's someone who can make everything okay. What I find even more interesting and even surprising is that same survey found that 63% of Christians in the U.S. say that praying regularly is an essential part of their Christian identity. So when you think about (laughs) 55% of Americans pray daily and 63% of Christians say that that practice of prayer is essential for their identity, we're not all that different. It's not like significantly different from one to another. People like Martin Luther, they would say, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Now there's part of us that could read that and go, that's a good quote, I intellectually agree with that. But more importantly for me is, do our lives display this? that the only way that we can exist and flourish in this world is through the practice of prayer. Is it essential to our life? I'm reminded that as the disciples or the apprentices of Jesus, as they walked with him and lived with him, out of everything, what did they ask Jesus to teach them to do? Jesus, teach us to pray. They didn't ask Jesus to teach us to speak with authority or drive out demons or walk on water or turn water into Cabernet or Pinot. No, they said, teach us to pray. It seems as if the disciples were watching Jesus' life and they knew that, that the source of his power was his connection to God in prayer. So Jesus, teaches, Lord, teach us to pray. And when you read the Gospels, you see that this is a habit of Jesus' life. He would depart from the crowds and go be alone with God in prayer. He would steal away moments in isolation and solitude when things would get difficult. He would ask his closest friends to come with him to a garden to pray because the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. What we find here that Jesus demonstrated in his life a deep, abiding. Uh, desire to meet with God in prayer. Prayer was essential. And if it was essential for Jesus' life, how do we treat it so flippantly? If, it, if a Jesus found it so important, might we find it even more essential in our life? I think it's essential because the power of prayer is in many ways the power of reframing. It's essential because it reminds us of what ultimately is true and significant when we turn our attention and our affections to the one who promises to be with us, we realize what really matters in the end. I love a book by uh, this author, Marjorie Thompson. She wrote one of my favorite books on the spiritual disciplines called Soul Feast. If you want to take a deep dive in that, I recommend this book, Soul Feast. But she said this in that book, the one condition that precedes, that goes before every kind of prayer is being present to God with conscious. Awareness. In a very real sense, then, the foundation of all prayer is being present to the presence of God. So, the way that we enter into prayer, ultimately, what prayer is, is being present to God's presence, which is always with us. It's a redirection, it's a reframing of our life in the reality of God's presence. Daniel knew that ultimately he did not lose everything when he was taken to Babylon. Why? Because God promised to be with him even there. Daniel knelt in prayer three times a day in Babylon, perhaps just like he did three times a day in Israel. God's presence was not bound by geography or circumstance or who sat on the throne. He could be present to the presence of God. And as he experienced God's presence, Daniel remembered God and remembered who he was. That is the power of this habit. Prayerful reflection, morning, midday, at the end of our day is ultimately about the power of reframing our day around God's presence, returning to God and to perceive our lives differently. In in the 15th century, Italian painter, Filippo Lippi, he shared a painting called The Virgin Child with St. Jerome and Dominic. Here's the painting right here. When critics saw it, they actually despised it. They thought it just looked odd and funky. Uh, Critics, they just railed on it. It looks like the hill's spilling over. It looks like that tree is way too big. What's going on with this guy's elbows and the position where he was in, in that one? It looks like that character on the right-hand side is way further back, even though he's not. It's just the dimensions all looked wrong, and it it was regarded as a really, really awful painting. That is, until art critic Robert Cumming realized many, many years later that this piece was commissioned to be at a prayer station in a chapel. It was never meant to be hung in an art gallery. It was meant to be Uh, to be positioned above people who are kneeling and praying underneath it. And when coming, he lowered himself underneath this painting and looked up as if it was hung in a prayer station. He saw the masterpiece that was this painting. The artist had created it with a a specific perspective. And to see what was intended, they needed to reposition themselves in that painting. You see, prayer reframes our day. Prayer is this ability to reframe our day and where we are. Um, It gives us the right perspective to see life from a better vantage point. So we stop our day again and again in prayerful meditation because we realize we weren't meant to see this life on our own. We weren't meant to go through life without God. And so this is about reframing so that we can see life and everything else correctly. So I want just to consider how this keystone habit reframes our day. In the morning, rather than getting up and getting a jump on the day, we welcome the day in silence with God. We remember the gracious gift that one more day of life is. And we surrender that day to God. For some people, this practice can be as simple as rolling out of of the bed and falling on your knees for a moment of prayer. It could be slowly praying the Lord's Prayer and thinking about what each word means. It might mean praying a psalm or bringing your anxieties to God again that day. But the importance of the morning prayer is that you begin by remembering that God is with you in this day that God created. Then there's power of reframing the midday for me, this is actually the hard one. Why? Because we have such a fragmented, um, compartmentalized relationship with God. We treat God like we start our day with God and then we leave God behind as we go throughout our day. And here we are in the middle of the day. We use are in the middle of our agenda, middle of our schedule. The demands of the day or our boss is all around us. Our to-do lists are in charge. Yet, if we were to pause we were to pause, we would remember that God is still with us, and God wants to be part of all of our day. I personally feel like most days, this is another confession, that most days I live like a functional atheist. What I mean by that is, uh, intellectually, I believe in God, I believe in God's presence, but I don't live my days like I need God at every moment. I, I live as if I'm on it on my own, I don't practice dependence upon God for direction, wisdom, and strength. And you might as well. But when we pause in the middle of the day, we remember that God is with us then and there. For me, I, I think for, for us to live this, we might even need to set an alarm on our calendars, on our phones, just to ping us in the middle of the day to remind us to stop. Remember that God is with you right there at your desk right there as you're sitting with a friend about to have lunch, that God is with you. It could be as simple as stopping the day for a short walk around your building. Maybe it's sitting in your car before you step into that lunch meeting and just giving that time over to God. We had a, a guest preacher, David Fitch, out of Chicago. He actually shared one of his habits is he became a regular at a really seedy dive bar there in Chicago where he lives. He felt the call, to be present in the midst of a dark place, and he also enjoys beer. And uh, so he, I think that was a good match for him. But before he would step into this bar, he would—he shared with us last summer that he would pray the prayer of Epiclesis, which is uh, in very high church settings, it's the prayer that a priest prays over communion. God, take this common, ordinary bread, this cup of wine, and make it your sacred presence. And he shared that before he walked in that bar, he would prayer the epiklesis over that building. God, take this common, ordinary space. And may we experience your presence. Transform this ordinary uh, gathering into something sacred that you could feed our souls. And that changed, that reoriented his experiences. It changed the reality that God was present there in that place. Think about how that would t- change Uh, your environments, in the middle of your day, how your workplace would be different if you pause in the middle of the day, remember that God was present there. In that lunch meeting, when you're at home taking care of the kids, when you're in middle of class and you're surrounded by all all these peers with all their own needs, that we dedicate the day to God and to God's presence. And then lastly, consider how the power of reframing at the end of day, uh, how that could how how that could release power into our experiences. I mean, how do you finish your day? Is it binging another show or one last glass of wine? Is it enviously looking at Instagram? Instead, consider how it would change our experience if we finished our days with prayer, replaying the day in light of God's grace and mercy just to release that day to God once again. So my invitation for you, Vine family, is to reconsider this week, reconsider the role that prayer plays in your life. To help you, a small team of people in our church, they have written tools around this practice of praying three times a day. Uh, And you can see it on our church's website, divineawesomeorg backslash practice. Uh, If you were to click on prayer three times a day, you'd notice that we have these seven tools already written to help us. Because many of us, we don't know really how to pray. And so this will help us in doing that. And so for us this week, my encouragement is to consider the role that prayer plays in your life and explore what it would be like to stop, in the, stop your day three times just to practice the presence of Christ in prayer. And my belief is that as we do this, we will will long for it more. We will actually need to go to God in prayer much more than three times a day. So uh, a shout out to Melena for writing these, some of these uh, practices. Thank you for doing that. And our goal is that not only we do this alone, but that you can do this with your roommates or your spouse or with your kids. You can do this with your practice group. You guys can choose maybe one of these practices to explore uh, for this week. You go and do it and you come back together and you talk about how you experience God's nearness in prayer. As we continue to do this in our journey of following Jesus together, my hope and my prayer is that this keystone habit will mark not only your life, but also our life and our church together, that we could be formed by the power of prayer, and that, that, that prayer can reframe our lives and our purpose in our world.